The Levites, uh, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelata, Azariah, Jotabad, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them, the word of the Lord. Can we give Udai a round of applause for all those names? I, um, I wanted to, so Udai studied uh, Hebrew Bible at Duke Divinity School, and I definitely did not want to throw this passage at anybody who <laughs> hadn't had some Hebrew experience, because there are a lot of names in there, and I, I didn't want to read it, so really thankful for him. So uh, everyone, welcome to Oak Church. Uh, my name is Brody. If you don't know me, I am filling in for our uh, regular pastor, Pastor Chris, as he is on sabbatical. A um, couple more weeks of his sabbatical, and then he'll return to us. Um, and today is our last day in the summer series on Ezra and Nehemiah. For the summer, we have been uh, sort of journeying with the ancient Israelites as they have left the land of exile um, and, and separation from the promised land in, in Babylon. And they are returning to the city of Jerusalem um, and starting to rebuild. And, and so um, we've been kind of journeying with them this whole time. Um, if you want to catch up on uh, what we've been learning, you can find us on, at, on Spotify. Just look up Oak Church Sermons. You can kind of uh, tune into the rest of the series. But um, yeah, today is the last day of the series, and um, we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we are um, going to continue to consider what it means to rebuild or build the city of God. Um, now, okay, I went to UNC, and I know we're in Durham, and there's lots of Duke folks. Um, and one of, the, one of my favorite parts about UNC was the, like, triangle of rivalries between NC State and UNC and Duke. And, like, we kind of recognized that Duke was, like, better than us. There are all these, like, out-of-state northern rich kids who, you know— came and that, you know, it's very impressive to get into Duke. So like, we always like to hate on NC State when I was there. And you just have to say mean things about NC State. It's part of the culture. Um, and one of the mean things we would always say about NC State is that their campus is bland and boring and it's nothing but brick, just brick everywhere. Um, NC State loves their brick. If you go to their campus, you'll, you'll really, you know, get to know the NC State brick. And um, I think that when I was young and naive and hating on NC State brick, um, I had been underestimating brick, like the humble brick, right? It's, it seems like this bland, boring, outdated thing. You see a big red brick building, it doesn't seem very interesting. 
What I've come to learn now is that there's a lot more going on in the humble brick than I had originally thought. Um, Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor, and he's famous for saying that I found Rome a city of brick and I left it a city of marble. Um, and he's sort of having the same prejudice that I had. He was exaggerating, right? I mean, Rome is a city of brick. It was always a city of brick. Um, but that in itself is, is no small brag on its cultural dominance and power. Um, the hanging gardens of Babylon were made of brick. The temples of Bagan in Myanmar were made of brick. The Malbork Castle in Poland, Siena's Palazzo and Florence's Duomo, the bridges of Isfahan in Iran, the Hampton Court Palace. I'm keeping Jess on her toes, flipping through all these photos. Um, the Hampton Court Palace in West London, th these are all brick. So is one of the most famous churches in the world, the Hagia Sophia um, in Istanbul, and, and one of the most famous skyscrapers, the Chrysler Building um, in Manhattan, and even the Taj Mahal, it's, it's all brick, 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 brick. Um, the architect Frank Lloyd Wright is, is famous for saying that he could make a brick that's worth its weight in gold. Right? This is how much one of the greatest architectural thinkers of modern history, this is how much weight he put in the brick. Human achievement and innovation and power and dominance are all on display in the humble brick. And in fact, the whole reason that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah exists, these, these books exist, because of bricks. When uh, the Old Testament scholar, Dr. Stephen Chapman was with us a few weeks ago, he talked about um, Ezra Nehemiah as the struggle for a temple and the struggle for a wall, right? The whole story that we've been learning can be summarized as the struggle for a temple and the struggle for a wall. Essentially, bricks properly arranged. This is the whole purpose of the people of Israel across these books. And we shouldn't really be surprised by that, that that's their purpose in these books. The story of, of God's people and their relationship with bricks has a long history throughout the scriptures. And in fact, it begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. This text is probably one of the most famous and, and earliest examples in scripture of the human capacity for systemic and industrial levels of pride and presumptiveness and sin. It's the story of the Tower of Babel, which, which by the way, that word Babel is the same Hebrew word for Babylon, where the Israelites were sent in exile. And the story goes that the powerful peoples of the world determined that with advanced technology and with innovation, they could build a tower that was so magnificent and enormous that it could reach the heavens, that, that it could scrape the sky. And, and in reaching the heavens, they could put God within their grasp. And what was this technology, this innovation upon which all of this pride and presumptiveness was founded? It was the humble brick. They said to each other, it says in verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. In the minds of these people, the brick held the power to bring them close to God by their own means and their own energy and might. If God feels far away, just build yourself a tower of brick and you can hold God captive. So we continue to trace this story to the point where God's people are held in slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 1, we read that they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. 
and they built Pitham and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. These were cities where they would prepare for famine by storing excess food. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Forced to put brick on top of brick, building store cities, which would protect Egypt from famine and make them essentially invulnerable. By harnessing the power of the brick, Egypt could assert power over the earth and other peoples. A few chapters later in Exodus 5, we read that Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave the order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, and that is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make them work harder for the people. Make them work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. The news of the liberation of God's people and the power of God's promise is resisted by Pharaoh by means of the brick. Double down on the power of the brick to assert authority and domination. Use the bricks to trap people, to hold them hostage, and you can manipulate God. By harnessing this power, Perhaps Egypt can stand against the covenant liberation of God for God's people. Eventually, the story continues, and the people of God reach the promised land. They're able to establish an independent kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, with David, the great king, on the throne. Naturally, David decides that it's time to build God a temple of brick. David says, here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God is in a tent. Now, granted, this story centers on cedar and not brick, but the sentiment is the same. We need to establish a house for God's presence. But God tells David, you are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. It's true that God does need a temple made of brick or stone or cedar. And this is because God longs to be close to God's people and, and enter into the world with a nearness that's beyond comprehension. God wants to be approached in real time and space in the material world that we experience. And so, yes, God does need a temple. God will not be distant. God will not be beyond the heavens where we have to build a tower to reach out to God. God will be near to us and dwell in a house. But before that temple was built, God knew exactly the kind of power that brick and stone and cedar held. In the right hands, the brick brings shelter and security and a place to experience God's presence. But in the wrong hands, 
the brick, as we saw with Pharaoh, is a weapon to wage war against God and God's people. So no, David, the military strategist, the mighty man of battle, he will not wield the power of the brick. Instead of David establishing a house for God, we read God say that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you, God tells David, but not made of brick, made of people, made of a relationship, father and son. And this begins Israel's process of understanding that the presence and the covenant of their God is bigger and broader and deeper than the temple that they can touch and feel and enter that's made of stone and brick. Eventually, the independent kingdom of Israel comes under threat. Right? Neighboring nations like Babylon and Assyria and Persia, they start their rampages. And the writing is on the wall for the Israelites. The prophets can tell what's coming. But because of this long history that they have with human power, industry, domination, and bricks, the Israelites think of things a little bit differently. In these powerful nations, the prophets do not see inspiration. They do not see human achievement. They do not see glory. They see arrogance and futility. The prophet Isaiah writes this on the dawn of the Babylonian exile in which this great temple that David was describing is destroyed. Isaiah writes, Every warrior's boot used in battle and, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. When the forces of empire knock down the cedars and break apart the bricks, it is only pride and, and arrogance and futility that reasserts domination. It's not more bricks, more power, more dominion that will uphold justice and righteousness, but it's the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor. It's the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this and the promises that hold God's people together. 
So by the time we reach this part of the story in Ezra and Nehemiah, this is something that the people of Israel know very well. This is, this is a rich part of their tradition. So yes, they are rebuilding a city with brick and stone, but they're very careful to remember what exactly is going on. Jerusalem will not be Babel. The temple will not be a tower. The power to grasp God and assert dominion is not what they are after. They, they know very well the danger involved in placing brick on top of brick. And we've seen them struggle with that danger. As they have stumbled their way through faithful action, we have seen them from time to time reject the relationships and the unity for the sake of the project. But God always seems to draw them back to communion, unity. Knowing that all of this is in their heads and in their hearts, in their culture and in their history of their relationship with God, we can make sense of what they're doing here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, it may seem odd that we're closing our series on Ezra and Nehemiah in chapter 8. There's five chapters left, right? We're not close to the end. There is still opposition to overcome. There's still cultural and political forces to navigate. There's still obstacles to get through. There's still conflict and unresolved issues. And yet here they are feasting and worshiping and celebrating in the middle of the story. This isn't a celebration of the culmination of all that they've done. This isn't a celebration of the end of the story, of the triumph, of the resolution. And why is that? It's because they know that if they wait for that final brick to be placed, it will just be knocked down by a more powerful, greedy nation. They know that the bricks are not the point. The communion is the point. The unity is the point. The buildings are just there to bring them close to God and one another. And so they take the time here to build that structure, right? The structure of worship and unity and commonality in the middle of the story, instead of waiting for the story's resolution. Ezra is an old man at this point. He's been working and serving in this community for decades. He knows the opposition that they've faced. He knows the threats that surround everyone. He knows how much work there is to do and how futile it likely is. But here he says, put away your weeping and put away your working. There will be plenty of time to weep and to work. Life is full of weeping and working. For now, we will feast and celebrate and worship and send excess food to those who have nothing prepared. Today is not a day for hunger and tears and work. The steps they're taking here to celebrate in the middle of the story are essential for the people of God to prepare them for what's coming, to prepare them for their future. A few centuries down the line, Jesus walks by this very temple that this 
whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah has been all about. And his disciples, they stop and they comment on how magnificent it is, how beautiful it is, how much human power and achievement is on display. And by this point, the mighty governor Herod had renovated the temple and expanded the temple, and, and he improved it so much that it was being called Herod's temple. And, and as the disciples were admiring it and commenting on it, Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one brick will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus here is predicting the destruction of the temple that will come about 40 years in the future in 70 AD. The Romans, with all of their cultural dominance and power and might, they sought to cut off God's people from their God by dismantling the bricks that held God's presence. But for centuries now, the people of God were coming to learn that the bricks were not the whole story. This was just a medium through which the unstoppable love of God came to the people. And if you knock down the bricks, you don't cut off that love, you just unleash it. In the decades following Christ's resurrection and the collapse of the temple, the early Christians started to try and make sense of what it meant to be a people worshiping God without a temple of brick and stone. This is all over the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Don't you know that you, yourselves, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you, together, are that temple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, You also are like living stones, and you are being built into a spiritual house. We are human bricks, composing the house of God's presence. Bricks not, not made of clay and straw and mud, but of flesh and bones and blood. God does not live in a house of cedar and stone, but of, of flesh bricks, known as humans. I had meat bricks throughout this whole sermon, but, but I got negative feedback on meat bricks from lots of people. <laughs> it's the value of having your people proofread your sermon. <laughs> if we want to understand what we can learn from the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, it largely rests on our ability to build our own temple. Not of bricks, but of the bonds that hold us together. Of the union that we are called into. There's a relational union that exists eternally in the person of God. Father, Son, Spirit exists as, as an eternal communion. And Jesus is pulling us into that union through the gospel. And, and as part of that union, we now compose the temple of God's presence. And no matter what cultural domination or military force or industrial power asserts itself, that temple can never be destroyed or dismantled. So how can you be a good human brick? Well, it'll help to take a closer look at regular bricks. Bricks are fascinating. I learned so much about bricks this week. Bricks emerged independently in lots of different cultures. 
right? Cultures that weren't communicating with each other or influencing one another all developed bricks. And they all had basically the same features. They varied in size somewhat and in material somewhat, but they were all roughly the appropriate size to fit in the human hand. They all tended to be long rectangular prisms. And that's because the job of a brick is to receive the load that is given to it from the two bricks above it and transfer that load to the two bricks beneath it. Eventually, all the weight of any structure needs to get to the ground. It needs to get down to the foundation. Now, the weight will go to the ground, right? Gravity will make sure of that. It will get to the ground, and it'll be either follow a carefully constructed path through each brick and to the foundation, or it will get to the ground by collapsing and falling apart, destroying the building. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by God's spirit. So Christ is the foundation of a new sort of temple. And, and as we are pulled into the people of God, into the presence of God in the spirit, we are stacked as human bricks into a towering temple more glorious than any temple that Rome could ever seek to destroy. But how do we function as bricks? How do we get the load that is on us and bear the load that is above us and get it to the foundation? In part, it requires being ready to bear the load from others, but also requires distributing that load to others and ultimately, finally, to Christ. In other words, it requires bearing one another's burdens. This is part of living in the presence of God. The whole idea of composing this temple is to support and be supported, all for the end goal of experiencing and sharing God's presence. When we support each other in this way, and when we are ultimately supported by Christ, our foundation, we can have incredible strength even in the brokenness that comes in the middle of the story. We will find in our union a capacity to experience and imagine the presence of God and the kingdom of God breaking into the world here among us. I want to share with you an example from our own community of this kind of strength and support. As many of you know, our pastor who's on sabbatical, Pastor Chris, and his family and their Little League team survived a horrific shooting at the Little League game in Wilson a couple weeks ago. Everyone escaped physically safe, but the horror and trauma of that event will leave marks on everyone who experienced it. This week, Chris was reflecting on that experience, and he wrote this. When you hear the hurt and the sorrow, the frustration and the fatigue, Know that you are hearing parents wanting our country to be different than it is, 
wanting our towns and neighborhoods to not be dangerous spaces of crossfire, intentional or unintentional. Wanting the mental and emotional space back to love and shepherd our kids without stepping out of our homes in fear and suspicion. This kind of spacious heart and that sorrow is actually hopeful because those emotions are signals of a refusal to accept any of this as normal, routine, procedural, or acceptable. We must pray for these sorts of stubborn, capacious hearts. I assure you that I'm a deep believer in that sort of God talk. But we must also vote and harangue and persuade and partner to create a culture of action that is unsatisfied with anything less than justice, peace, and safety for our kids, for all kids everywhere, full stop. By composing the temple together and housing the presence of God within our midst, we prepare ourselves to refuse to accept anything other than the glory of God's kingdom and the justice of God here and now in the middle of the story. We won't get used to things. We won't lose imagination for hope. We won't wait for the resolution. We will continue imagining even if it's stubborn here and now. May our hearts be so tightly built together around the presence of God that we have the stubbornness to imagine and enact the kingdom of God here and now, even before the story is resolved. This, this also requires seeing the temple, the invisible temple held together by God's spirit in and among the actual temples of brick and stone around us. It requires having the same posture as the Israelites here in our text. We don't wait for the end of the story. We don't wait for the last brick or stone, for the resolution of all opposition and evil. God's spirit is breaking into the middle of the story. The presence of God is here and now, even while our structures of brick and stone are still under threat. Nevertheless, we see the invisible temple that God has built by God's promise and love. And we worship now. We celebrate now. Learning this lesson from Ezra and Nehemiah can't be more timely for us as a community. When the, when the future of our own brick and stone, this building that we worship in, is uncertain. But we won't wait for the resolution of that story to worship and to live in the presence of God and to celebrate with one another and to share in God's gift. We'll do all of those things now, today, in the middle of the story, because that's exactly where God is. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we are waiting in humble expectation of the ways that you will move and change things and break into the story right in the middle of it. God, we are crying out about the opposition, the evil, the domination, the injustice. And God, at the same time, we are worshiping and celebrating and feasting and caring for one another, even in the middle of the story. We pray that you will honor the ways 
that we are seeking you, the seeking to do that, even if they are sometimes half-hearted and, and, and wrought with pain and, and frustration. God, we, we are grateful for this community, for the experience of your presence here and now. We pray that it will go with us wherever we go from here into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.